Joining us today to talk more about Bloomberg's war on vaping and the impact on Latin America is Dr. Roberto Sussman, Senior Researcher in Theoretical Physics at the Institute of Nuclear Sciences, National University of Mexico, and he's the founder and director of Pro Vapeo, a nonprofit association representing Mexican consumers of non-combustible nicotine products. Dr. Sussman, thanks for joining us today on Red Watch. Oh, thank you very much, Brent. I'm happy to uh, address the North American uh, public. And uh, well, thank you very much. I'm here. Let's uh, let's get on it. The U.S., let's rock and roll. Let's rock and roll. I love the attitude. So before we dive in to the inglorious activities of Bloomberg et al., first, tell us about the vaping market in Mexico. How popular is vaping and what can you tell us about the vapors themselves? It's a very interesting situation in Mexico because, and, and it applies roughly to uh, all Latin American countries with variations from one country to the other. Um, there, the, the market uh, had his, its history. Vaping came to Mexico in 2011, has always been illegal, but it's not illegal to vape the usage. It's illegal, the marketing and distribution has always been like that. But um, in 2015, uh, there was a habeas corpus trial won by some vendors. And then the uh, Supreme Court in Mexico declared that the prohibition to commercialize vapor products was unconstitutional. We're not talking here about a black market run by criminals, but really more like an informal market, which is common in Latin America. Uh, like 50, 60% of the economic uh, activity is informal, means it's not registered in the tax system, right? So it continued like that. and. Um, but suddenly things changed because we had a new government, and uh, so um, the, and this is the, the this is probably the key of what we're talking about. Things changed. Uh, the authorities uh, became, especially one, uh, the de facto health minister became very, very, um, a, a, how you say, committed to 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 prohibit vaping to and to uh, strengthen the prohibition. And also there was a more intense campaign. The Avali crisis also was bad and so on. But still, even, even with all this, vaping continues. It, it's like uh, uh, you, can get the, you can get gear and uh, you can get liquids. There is a flourishing uh, industry of uh, Mexican-made liquids. And we continue vaping, but now the authorities uh, have been committed, have strengthened their, their position. And, uh, and most of the vapors in Mexico, the market, it's about 1 million, according to the to polls. But uh, again, because it's an informal market, it's very difficult to have exact numbers. But we estimate about 1 million users of vapor products in different levels. Most of them, practically uh, an overwhelming majority, are ex-smokers or people trying to quit smoking. And um, that's it. It continues in the street and the market is open, but we're under attack now. So in terms of the smoking, uh, the smokers base, there are there a lot of smokers in Latin America? I mean, and should I should we be addressing Mexico only here or is it OK to talk about Latin America in a group of countries. Yeah, it's uh, 
I think we should address Mexico, but bear in mind that a lot of what is uh, happening in Mexico uh, is very, can be applied to, to, to other Latin American countries. But uh, there is also variation among Latin American countries that I can explain very quickly. First of all, smoking. Smoking in the region. Um, there are only three countries that have a bad smoking problem. Like I can say Chile, perhaps Argentina, and Cuba. These are the smokers that are uh, over 25%. But uh, in the rest of the Latin American countries, including Brazil, uh, the smoking prevalence is rather low. Let's, let's take Mexico, for example. It's 17% uh, of the adult population, or the population over 12 years old, smokes. But of those, only 38% smoke every day, right? And so, uh, and also, you can say in Mexico, for example, and this applies to other Latin American countries as well, smoking is not the, the worst uh, health problem. But obesity and diabetes, at least in Mexico, diabetes kills four times more people than smoking. And so, uh, uh, but still, you, you do have a problem. You have millions of people who, who, are, who smoke and who would like to give up smoking. Also, socially, smoking is not so denormalized as in the U.S. Smoking uh, nicotine is still more accepted socially than smoking marijuana. And, uh, and there are variations, uh, it varies from country to country. Like in Argentina, Chile, uh, in Cuba, you see much more smokers and it's also more accepted. That doesn't mean that smoking is okay. Like people, that doesn't mean that people welcome the, if you smoke, but it's, uh, it's not the same way that, that it is seen in, the, in, in North America. Yeah, I know a lot of people, and myself included, uh, have a picture of, let's just say, Mexico, for instance, having a lot of smokers. I'm not sure why. Yeah, that, that's it's, it's not that we have more smokers or more people dying from smoking or more cancers or whatever. Is that smoking is not so um, discredited. It's not seen as something so horrible as in the U.S. Like, if you light up in Berkeley, California, immediately, and, and I was a smoker. I still smoke the occasional cigar. Then you get lots of people coughing and telling you, etc., and slamming you, etc. But if you light up a cigarette in the street in Mexico City, nobody will care. As long as you don't smoke in their faces, nobody cares if you are smoking 10, 20 meters away and, and, and they don't smell it. And that's why perhaps you have this impression that there are many smokers when in fact, if you talk about, you know, I have to repeat these figures, only 38% of Mexican smokers smoke every day. It's, uh, it's, uh, in France, it would be 90% of smokers who smoke every day. Say. So smoking is it's a more relaxed thing. In, 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 in Diabetes and obesity are much worse killers than smoking. So how is the tobacco industry then overall perceived in Mexico? Are they the hyper villain, villain figure or is that just a narrative that we have up here in the north? Yeah, definitely. It's not perceived. Look, the tobacco industry is not seen as good guys in Mexico. That, that, that's for a start. They're seen 
as uh, corrupt and as greedy and uh, selling a product that is toxic and so on. This is shared worldwide and it's also true in Mexico and in Latin America. But you also have to see the social, the broad context. Like for example, last year uh, in 2017, one of the governors in Mexico was participating in a scheme to traffic with cancer medicine for children. So children were receiving swearum and water instead of their chemotherapy. And uh, we have this type of scandals. We have corruption scandals. We have drug war violence. We have criminality. When, when, when you are in, and you also have all other corporate entities, you know, petroleum, pharma, they, they do nasty things. They do horrible things. So to, to sell the idea that the tobacco industry is a sort of Hitler figure that surpasses all evils and that the moment you are you have some minimal connection that, that you are horrible, etc. That doesn't sell in Latin America because it crashes against the reality, right? So it's true, though, as, as you say, it's, it's a narrative that um, in, in Latin America simply doesn't sell. It doesn't, doesn't sell unless you really want to. Well, not to put too fine of a point on it, but I guess if you are in an area where there's a lot of corruption already, trying to sell the narrative that big tobacco is some kind of special evil that's doing action in your country. It's a little bit of a harder sell. And let's talk about the sell because that sell is happening for Michael Bloomberg and his charities and, you know, cohorts. How has that sales job been going in Mexico? This has been the, the narrative of tobacco control in Mexico, which is not as big as tobacco control in the U.S. It's in Mexico. It's a rather small group of uh, medical technocrats and government, they're tied with government officials and so on. It's a small group. They've been using this narrative all the time, all the time, all the time. The difference is that Bloomberg uh, recently, and then, then I, uh, we also have to mention that Bloomberg has been there all the time. Uh, they're directly, indirectly control for tobacco-free kids and so on. But only recently, these Bloomberg uh, associations and NGOs and so on, ha now they have, they reach the highest levels of government. And so, but, and they, they, they sell this narrative. They sell this narrative and yeah, people say, yes, it's true. Tobacco industry is very bad. And if this guy is talking about the tobacco, uh, is paid by the tobacco industry or has a conflict of interest, the tobacco industry, then that guy cannot be trusted very much. However, you have to, again, you have to put this in, in contrast. This guy, suppose there is somebody who, who, who has conflict of interest with the tobacco industry and is speaking. But then you will have uh, guys who, who, who are in much worse conflict of interest and they're also speaking. So it's not a singular, it's not a singular uh, bad guy. And also, and this is a recent development, People are beginning to be aware that the others, the ones that accuse uh, people of having conflict of interest uh, with the tobacco industry, they themselves have conflicts of interest. Because uh, we have to say that uh, Bloomberg philanthropy is a conflict of interest as well. And uh, how do you mean? Uh, how do you mean? Yeah, because uh, it's uh, 
people who who are funded by by Bloomberg, they have to they have to stick the, to the to the line of of uh, where Bloomberg philosophy, the type of policies and and uh, the approach to harm reduction and tobacco, the way they the the, the way that uh, Mr. Bloomberg thinks. And uh, it's naive to think that if you express a diverging view, that Mr. Bloomberg will keep the money flowing. So it's a conflict of interest. And uh, then Bloomberg Philanthropy is a corporate organization. It's not a granny, a rich granny that is giving money to the church. It's it's a a different type of philanthropy. And therefore, it's a conflict of interest, in fact. If you want to hear the story, we have been also accused by these Bloomberg groups of being tobacco fronts. Um, I can also explain what, uh, the, their arguments and so on. Well, please do. I mean, tell us what have Bloomberg et al. been saying about your group? It is for them very difficult to pinpoint us because we are a small organization of uh, middle class professionals. Uh, we have no bank account in our organization. We don't receive donations. And we work with a shoestring budget. In fact, we put money, our own money. And um, that's why we are small. If we, really, if we were receiving some corporate uh, money, we would have secretaries, we would have professional PR people, we would have lobbyists and so on. But we, we don't. We are, we're a small guy. We are a small fry. Now, uh, they've been trying to pinpoint us as as big tobacco front, but it's very difficult. Now, um, we are uh, affiliated to INCO. INCO is the International Network of Nicotine Consumers Organizations. So we're affiliated, but INCO is an umbrella organization. The the fact uh, and and INCO has received funds from the um, uh, Foundation for a Smoke Free World which, uh, you know, tobacco control uh, sees that as, as tobacco money. And, uh, uh, but we don't receive this money. That money goes to INCO. But if, if you have people paid to libel you, they don't go to these details, they just libel you. And so it's a libel. Here I'm stating categorically, we do not receive any funding, any logistical or any advice or we are not part of the tobacco industry at all we uh, and and i've been asking the lower house of congress in mexico i was asked this question they tell me well we we know that you talk to the tobacco people to executives of philip morris and british american tobacco yes we talk with them because we represent consumers but talking to them doesn't mean that we are uh, working for them or that we are paid by them or that we are fronts, that we are some sort of front to, to sweeten the image of, of big tobacco. We are not like that. I categorically deny that. Categorically accuse this as McCarthyism. You know, when Senator McCarthy was alive, just talking to some communists made you a communist, right? And uh, no, we, we talk to the tobacco people. I say openly, I talk with them. I mean, this is the WHO uh, position. It's Article 5.3 that, you know, basically tars and feathers anybody that even has as much of a cup of coffee with big tobacco. Yeah, it's McCarthyism. It's McCarthyism. And, and it, it is taking this narrative of the tobacco wars 
that has some justification in the 1980s, 1990s, and it's extending it to conditions that is no longer, that is laughable, it's ludicrous. It's, uh, it doesn't apply to the reality today. In fact, our position is that we are happy that the tobacco industry is manufacturing harm reduction products. If the tobacco industry was only manufacturing cigarettes, we wouldn't talk with them. We agreed. We agree that they should be marginalized and demonized and whatever. But the fact that the industry is making these products, I think it's a positive development that has to be taken notice. I just want to, before we move on from INCO, I just want to get a better sense. I mean, so I understand that there was a little bit of controversy around INCO taking that money from Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, at least certainly after the attack started coming. How is the relationship with INCO, you know, as an umbrella organization? I mean, are they doing the right thing here? I think they're doing the right thing because uh, we, we need to be together. Like, uh, uh, rather than having 32 small organizations uh, spread around the world, we need a, a common place where we can talk, where we can have meetings, where we can exchange information, exchange experiences, life experiences, and etc. This is uh, very strengthening to all of us. And this is the mission of INCO. INCO is not like the like the mother hen, and we are like the little hen, and we obey mommy Inko. It's not like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a place, a common place, where we can get together and exchange views and so on. Now, Inko has these grants for its own purposes, which have nothing to do with what we do. Is the, the purposes is to, to try to get into the COP meetings, because uh, Inko is based in Geneva, and the type of activities that they are doing have to do with uh, with diplomacy, with the uh, lawyers, uh, with trying to challenge this idea that in the COP meetings, the uh, conference of the party meetings of the FTCT, uh, we are labeled as industry. And we are not allowed to enter as observers. And that's unfair because we are not tobacco fronts. We are consumers and we are legitimate shareholders and we should get in there. Now, this is difficult, and, and INCO is taking care of that, using the, the funds probably, I, I assume, for these purposes. But uh, the day-to-day -day activities that we do in Mexico with Mexican smokers, with Mexican media, with legislators, with opinion makers, uh, that INCO has nothing to do with that. INCO is remote. It's not, it doesn't have any influence in our day-to-day -day advocacy, right? So I, I think this, people have to, to be very clear about this distinction of labor eh, between INCO and, and what we do. Consumers have so been left out of the discussion. And it's very disheartening to hear that even at, you know, at the global level, if you, have, you, you bring 32 groups together and you can't even get a voice. Yeah, that, that's true. Consumers... But this is a part of the of tobacco control. The tobacco control, from his inceptions, has been a sort of technocracy. It's a it's a it's a vertical structure. It's a pyramid. On top of the pyramid, you have some technocrats who decide what's good for for everybody else, and this decision is implemented implemented from top to down. Now, you could say that uh, since smoking is such a terrible health problem and uh, you could say that horrible things has to be done had to be done for the common good in an undemocratic way in a vertical technocratic authoritarian way 
against smoking because of the tobacco industry and so on. You could say that, and let's say, let's say that sometimes uh, good deeds are achieved by doing bad things or by doing following methods that are not really very nice, etc. Let's assume that. But then it comes tobacco harm reduction when you have products that are much, much, they really decrease the risk and you are giving smokers another option that is distinct from abstinence, then this has to be challenged. Then, then you cannot see, you can say you, you, you cannot continue doing this vertical approach and say harm reduction when it was applied to AIDS or to people who were injecting drugs and so on. It was very successful because consumers, I mean, the, the people who were suffering, the, the, uh, the people, the users of substances that were injecting themselves, they had a voice. And people who, who approached them shared with them the experience and so on. It was, but that was in the 1990s. The 1990s, we didn't have this type of, uh, of technocratic dictatorships trying to run lives for people. And uh, so tobacco control, uh, the, the, the um, harm reduction applied to tobacco, which is called the tobacco harm reduction, is, is facing, it, it, it is really the hostility, is because we're challenging a business model in which technocrats, who are experts, so-called experts, although many of the things they say uh, as a scientist, I can tell you that are wrong, but these experts on the top of the pyramid they make decisions, and these decisions are transmitted vertically. And uh, we, the consumers, have, simply have to comply. We have no other choice. And um, uh, yeah, we uh, consumers have been left out. As I emphasized, that, that happened also with smokers. And uh, even if we forget that because smoking is so bad, we are committed that this does not happen when smokers have an alternative have a, an alternative choice uh, besides us abstinence so the pressure is coming from outside of mexico this top down pyramid it's not like it's not like the top of the pyramids in mexico it's well it's in bloomberg's offices it's the who offices it's campaign for tobacco free kids offices how does it feel to have that pressure coming externally from outside of your own democracy well let's say that uh, Although, yeah, uh, for example, Bloomberg uh, is paying the bill. Tobacco control, tobacco uh, free kids. Uh, they are like the oper operatives there because it's a complicated structure. It's, uh, perhaps Bloomberg puts the money, but Bloomberg needs uh, NGOs that are that are going to do the field work, the operative field work. And it's complicated. That's, uh, it, would, it would be interesting to have a special program on that. But then what, um, you will never hear a, uh, techno, one of these technocrats in Mexico saying, uh, we want to ban vaping because uh, tobacco-free kids is telling it. They'll never say that. What is their political shield is the WHO, right? They're saying, no, 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 so the WHO is saying, and the WHO is, uh, is the last word here in health. It's the World Health Organization. That's it. It's like uh, Catholic priests in a small town. The Pope say it. Yeah, that's it. And uh, so that's a shield. See, officially, things are done because these are the recommendations of the 
Pan American Health Organization or the World Health Organization and so on. But so what's the reality there? The reality there is that the Pan American Health Organization and the WHO in what matters to nicotine, it's, it's funded by Bloomberg. That's Bloomberg funds feed all this machinery, right? But they're never going to say, no, 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 it's because Mr. Bloomberg told me and so on. And no, they're never going to say that. But it is known. It is known that this is the way it's operating. And uh, it's not, uh, as again, I, I would like to emphasize that in Latin America, Bloomberg is not the only one doing this type of things. You have all sorts of corporate interests because we are underdeveloped countries. We are, uh, we are not rich countries and uh, our political institutions are weak. Uh, we are young democracies and we are very prone to, to caudillos, you know, I don't know, to populists and uh, all sorts of things and also dictatorships and whatever. So what Bloomberg is doing in Mexico uh, and in Latin America, other guys do. And it's not a uniquely, it's not uniquely evil, but people do resent it. We do resent it and uh, we dislike it. And uh, one of the things that we are doing is making people aware that, that those, uh, the, the, these people that are saying, oh, no, no, we're worried about the health of Mexicans and the children and so on, that these people are not clean, that these people also have interests. Now, it's legitimate to have interests. Uh, we are not moralists or puritanicals and whatever or realistic. We realize that somebody is funded by big pharma. That doesn't mean that person has to be uh, thrown out of the window. Just that person has to declare that, 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 that uh, is, uh, has a conflict of interest and that has to be recognized. And that person has to be scrutinized and subjected to the normative of the of procedures or legislative procedures or decision making, whatever. And that thing, the same has to be applied to Mr. Bloomberg and to tobacco free kids and to the World Health Organization and to all these people. We have to remove the disguise they have as angels or as neutrals and so on and force them to acknowledge that they are just participants in this dirty game, right? This is the mission. So um, going back to the question is, um, we, we do resent that. We are not moralists. We, we, we are not, we don't, we are agree that these type of things are decided among people who have interests. We also have interests. We protect consumers. And uh, we would like these products to, to, to be sold because otherwise uh, you need an industry to sell these products, whether it's a small vaping industries or jewel or tobacco industry or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as the products are not risky, as long as the products allow smokers to go to migrate as an option to safer products. We know that it's going to be sold by industry, by people who are not angels, who are making profit and so on. And we would like all these tobacco control people to remove this angel mask that they are using, that they say, oh, no, no, we are, we are good guys. We, uh, 
we're slaying dragons and we're good guys and we have no interest, it's only the pope. No, that's not true. You protect interests of Bloomberg philanthropy, you protect the interest of a technocracy that is still married to the old, uh, to the old pyramidal way of, uh, of, of trying smoking, and you resent that and you have a lot of hubris and you are also tied to pharmaceutics and you you are not you, you but it's okay i'm not I, I don't want to i don't want to remove you i just want that you uh, show yourself with your conflicts is it colonialism yeah <laughs> of course the situation now in mexico is that we, our president uh, is centralizing power a lot he controls both houses of Congress, and he was elected by a, a, a um, groundbreak, a big victory, right? And so he's centralizing power, and he's also centralizing power in the health sector. The health sector has now a, a, a person who is uh, Dr. Hugo Lopez Gatel, who has a lot of power. He has been given authority over many, many of most of, it's like a, the de facto health minister. What do you see the policies that, uh, that the health sector, which is now very centralized under this guy, they're following the policies recommended by the union. The union has a document called when uh, bans are best. And in, in there, they are recommending that in all uh, lo lower and middle income countries, uh, rather than regulating uh, uh, alternative nicotine products, that they ban them. And the reason that they give them are insulting, are practically insulting. So here, uh, I mentioned that what Bloomberg is doing and uh, is, uh, is done by other people in other sectors, not only nicotine. But here we are reaching a point of singularity, a point of, uh, of obscenity, I would say. It's a point of, of really, really insulting arguments at the union. They say you have to ban them because you're not able to regulate them because you are not the UK. They say the UK is okay because the UK has strong institutions and has a very strong tobacco control. Now, Mexico, Nigeria, Brazil, Philippines, hey, you are backward countries. You are, you are little backward countries. You are not able to regulate. You are not able to deal with that. Therefore, you have to ban them. And uh, and then they other other arguments of this nature, and we find that really insulting. And what we see is that the health sector in Mexico is following the policies that are recommended by the union. So we cannot say we don't have proof that somebody from the union came with Dr. Lopez Gatel, and 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 uh, it's not graft here. It's uh, we we uh, and say hey the doctor you have to or follow our orders it's, I, but what we see is that the policies are very similar so you have this idea that if it walks like a dog it quacks like a dog it has feathers it has to be a dog so what we are saying is that the government is implementing the policies suggested by a booklet by by uh, by, by uh, produced by people who have no idea what they're talking about. For example, they say uh, lower and middle income countries, they have uh, very few public resources. And so 
and regulation is very expensive. So all these resources should be divested to tobacco control and not to regulating this product. That's a very, very mistaken argument because prohibition is much more expensive than regulation. Because prohibition, you have to enforce it, you have to police it, and, uh, and then you generate crime, you generate a lack of quality control, and, uh, and in the end, the social cost is uh, orders of magnitude bigger than regulating you. So they're saying to uh, low and middle income countries, that you are not sophisticated enough, you're not wealthy enough, you don't have the mechanics or the ability to regulate these products. So if you might choose to allow uh, low-risk nicotine products into your market and regulate them because you think that's good for your people, you can't afford it. You can't really handle the complexity of, of doing that. You're not the UK. Yeah. Exactly. That, that yeah. is offensive, offensive to me to hear that, certainly because the kind of politics that they espouse, you know, everywhere else is ones yeah. that that's like the worst behavior in the world to do. I mean, it really is paternalism. It's paternalism and, and, uh, and it's wrong because it's not based on the data. It's not based on what is happening because, in fact, let me tell you that in a situation like Mexico or and now it's generalized to Latin America and perhaps to African and Asian countries. Uh, the, the volatility of the situation now with a pandemic and with a crisis, uh, it's the best time to regulate them because to regulate these products means that, uh, uh, that it doesn't cost any money to the, to the state. It's you regulate them. There is an expense of regulating and maintaining control. But then smokers, by their own will, without any cost to the to the finances of the state, they they migrate to these products. It's a much easier situation. And then and you generate tax revenues, right? You generate tax revenues. So it's a better idea to say that you shouldn't regulate them and risk black markets and so on. It's not credible. And, and then they say, yeah, because if we do that, then we can uh, apply tobacco control measures and the power measures and so on. But that's total rubbish. They haven't done that. Look, smoking in the, in the developed countries is going down, especially in, in the Anglophone countries, in Scandinavia. So it's going down. It's going down, right? But not in the third, not in, in middle in in the in our countries like in Mexico, smoking prevalence has become more or less stable since year 2000. Argentina, Cuba, Chile, all of these countries are similar. In Asia, smoking is increasing. Sixty uh, percent of adults in Indonesia uh, smoke, right? Uh, of men, sixty percent smoke. So to say. To tell the Indonesians, for example, no, 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 you cannot have access to to vapor products because we because these access are a distraction that does not allow us to to do our job to decrease smoking. But they haven't done that. They've had time to do that, and the trends are the opposite. So if vapor products are not accessible to us, suppose by by magic. They can remove them all from Mexico. There are no more vapor products in Mexico. Do you think that uh, this will create a decrease 
of smoking prevalence in Mexico? Absolutely not. Why not? Because vapor products were not available between 2000 and 2011. They were not available in Mexico. It didn't exist. Nobody knew about that. And, and, what, and, and tobacco control was the same as it is today, right? And the WHO was there and the FTCT had already been signed and so on. And tobacco prevalence in Mexico didn't decrease, right? Do you think uh, in Mexico, I'm sure you're familiar with what happened in the Philippines, at least what's been alleged, right? That a certain a certain amount of money actually was provided to the Philippine Food and Drug Administration um, to help ease away on some regulations that were anti-vaping in nature. Has that happened in Mexico? And not to the degree of the Philippines, but uh, we we had also we had also some uh, an interesting situation in Mexico. Um, during the le- um, in 2020, last year, uh, the um, lower house of Congress in Mexico organized forums to discuss. It's a, like open parliament to discuss the regulation of these products, and we were invited. Uh, that's that's when I told them that I have no conflict of interest with industry. I was asked this question. We were invited. We were invited as as vaping associations together with everybody else, you know, with the health ministry and so on. In fact, we are only two among uh, many, many speakers, uh, most of them anti-vaping, etc. But suddenly we were accused of having conflict of interest and we were expelled. We were uh, we were vetoed from these forums and the, the health ministry canceled participation. Now, from then on, uh, the health ministry has been pressing to exclude us from the debate, and not only us, but the most vocal legislators that have launched uh, initiatives to regulate the products. There are two or three legislators that have been very vocal in stating the need to regulate the products. So we and these legislators were constantly expelled and vetoed participation from all parliamentary discussion. And uh, then there were 14 law initiatives to regulate, uh, to deal with this issue. And only one, only one was asking for prohibition because we have a presidential decree that prohibited importation. And there was only one initiative that was, um, that was uh, proposing prohibition in the sense of strengthening the actual banks. And that, and the legislator that was promoting this was like the protege of this powerful uh, health official. It was the political operator. And everybody else was excluded. And we were excluded, excluded, excluded. And uh, the reason was that we were tobacco plants. And then again, I tell you, they never proved these allegations, just an allegation and so on. And because of the centralization of power, they were they were about to get away with murder. Now, what happened is that the document that was going to be discussed, almost ready to be approved and uh, and sent. Well, it's a, I don't want to go into details, but it's, a, it's an advanced document that was probably the one that was going to be voted finally as law. Suddenly, somebody discovered. We didn't do that. Somebody discovered that this doc, by looking at the metadata, that this document was written by an Argentinian lawyer who is officially 
the legal representative of tobacco-free kids in Latin America. Well, that sounds like a smoking gun. No, it, it, it was. It was a scandal. It was a scandal. You know, you can see it from a nationalistic point of view. Who the hell are these foreigners to dictate? But uh, we don't see it like that. It's not that we see it as uh, it's, against the, it's against the law in Mexico. It, it's not against the law that you are, as a Canadian, uh, order a Mexican company or dictate terms to a Mexican company or to a Mexican academic to do this or that. But here we're talking about government, about legislation. It's we're talking about the House of Congress in Mexico. And so it was a scandal. It was a scandal. Uh, and we see it also as an imposition. It's a proof of what we are saying. It's a proof that some interests represented by Mr. Bloomberg, by technocrats who are angry for somebody challenging and disrupting their business model by big pharma and a net of interest, who uh, this legislator uh, the, uh, proposing this prohibitionist initiative is serving this interest. So this this is proof of what we are saying. Roberto, you say it's a scandal, and it, it absolutely is. But how much of a scandal has it been for the government in Mexico? Have they reacted to it in any meaningful way? It's too early to know. And again, I, I need to emphasize, I need to emphasize that that uh, we're in a jungle of scandals of this type in Mexico. So perhaps if this has happened in Finland or in Denmark or even in Canada, it would be a major scandal. But in Mexico, it's like you are in a fireworks. Uh, it's fireworks everywhere. So one more fire is not really noticed so much, right? But yeah, no, it, it, it was noticed. It was noticed, especially that... Uh, one of the legislators who had been excluded and vetoed and also had been slandered. You know, if you are a legislator and uh, yeah, you talk with the tobacco industry, but to have other legislators in the corridors murmuring, saying, oh, he's the lobbyist of big tobacco, he's dishonest and so on. That's, that's infuriating. And this guy, this legislator, he's a very outspoken guy. He says, uh, he tells you, you want me to be diplomatic or to be honest? And so he said, he really accused the other, the legislator, who they are all in the governing party. It's not an issue that it was a political opposition. No, 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 it's within, within the, the ruling party. Say, and he accused her. He publicly, he went to the media and said, this, this is outrageous and we, we have been, etc. This is not correct. We're talking about millions of people that are being denied an option that can help them improve their health and so on. And um, yeah, it's too early to know what will be the effect. But what I can guarantee you is that it has been noticed. Mm -hmm. That this idea that I tell you that you have some dragon slayers of purity, absolute purity, combating horrible dragons, et cetera, et cetera, protecting kids and all this. Now, the, the mask went down. This is, this is the effect that we want. The mask went down. Now it is known that these people are not the clean guys they claim to be. And again, I, I have to emphasize that doesn't mean we, we are, nobody is, we're adults. 
Everybody has interests and so on. The question is to declare them. Mm-hmm. We have declared them. We are not big taboo. Our interest is different. But but we we and also tobacco industries, they, they have interests and, 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 and these people they have to declare their interest and they, they, the mask has come down. Now we see that these people are are also are, are as corrupt and as uh, as as motivated by interests as anybody else. And those interests appear more and more, certainly when it comes to their dealings with um, low and middle income countries, it seems to be paternalist, a little bit colonialist, definitely demeaning, derogatory, offensive. I mean, I thought history has already taught us not to act this way. Yes, absolutely. And it's also, is this idea that, how, who are they to decide for us? I mean, I, I don't mind that Mr. Bloomberg has an opinion, and the, even that he lobbies and he pays groups and so on. But uh, what is really demeaning is that he instructs these groups to to take on democratic procedures to silence and to libel people who disagree to present themselves as the pure as purity and the protectors of public good and no interest and neutral and so on. And uh, they, they don't do that in Finland. They don't do that in Germany uh, because they, they not in the U.S. They, they I don't know if it is uh, probably in the U.S. they have other means, but they're taking advantage of two things that are very important. One is, as I mentioned, weakness of our institutions. Second, centralization of power. And third, that our health sectors are many times uh, low in, in budget, like any many, many institutions of the health sector in Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Colombia. Well, Venezuela is, some, is a bit different, but Argentina, all these countries. And so here, there comes Mr. Bloomberg, or not him, and I'm saying part of, of his of his corporate structure, philanthropic corporate colonialist structure, comes there and says, okay, uh, I'm going to give you a grant so that you can research on whatever fertility or cancer or whatever and so on. And that's okay. But then these are strings attached. And uh, and uh, and they full they they fill a lot of vacuums of budget. Uh, that are chronically uh, underfunded in these countries, right? So I'm not saying that this shouldn't be done. I mean, I would prefer, I, I'm happy that Mr. Bloomberg is giving money to to study whatever disease in Nigeria or in Nicaragua or in Brazil. I'm, that's fine. But he has to be subjected to scrutiny. He has to, to comply with the democratic norms. He has to declare that as a conflict of interest, and he cannot have veto power, cannot have veto power, and he cannot impose policies. This is is where the red line has to be drawn. And it is the fact it is not drawn and the way they act, like for example, I want to know um, how much money is uh, X institution receiving from the union or from tobacco-free kids or from whatever part of the Bloomberg empire. I want to find out. Have you tried to do that? It's very difficult. It's very, I'm sure there is, 
I'm sure that the lawyers of Mr. Bloomberg take care to show all this, uh, that, that this is documented, but it's not easy to find. It's not easy to find. And, uh, and, and, and I would say total transparency, Mr. Bloomberg. Uh, you have to publicly say how much money you are giving to whom and for what purpose. And, uh, and then the public will have a chance, should have, must have a chance to verify that the funds are used for the purpose, right? Like they receive funds to campaign against smoking. Well, then it has to be against smoking, not against alternative products, right? And, and the people who receive these funds, they have to be transparent on how they are used. See, I'm a researcher. I receive funds from the National Council of Science and Technology of Mexico. I receive funds. Do you know the level of scrutiny that I am subjected to? Very hard level of scrutiny. I have to register every cent that I use in going to congresses, in whatever, if there is an experiment or if there is, if I need a new computer or new computer code, whatever. Everything has to be declared to the last minute, to the last cent, right? So why people, somebody in the health sector receives $100,000 from Mr. Bloomberg? I want to see the same thing. I want to see the same thing, the same level of scrutiny for these grants.